from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, Lyft goes all electric, how Wall Street views racial justice, Unilever's billion-dollar fund for nature, and how to make buildings safe after COVID-19. There's something in the air this week on 350. It's June 19th, 2020. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Most of us at Green Biz Group are off today commemorating Juneteenth, but joining me as usual from Midland Park, New Jersey, is intrepid Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. <laughs> Hello. How are you today, Joel? I'm good. I actually had to look up intrepid just to make sure I was using it right. <laughs> and it said it means fearless, unafraid, undaunted, undismayed, unflinching. I think that's about right. Wow. I have the acting. I should go get into acting. <laughs> I, I, I should have my Oscar <laughs> by this time. <laughs> but thank you. But thank you very much. Thank you very much for that. I appreciate it. I yeah. I want to live up to that. You do every day. I'm, I'm a fan. So um, I want to bring up something that's top of mind for me. This weekend, aside from being the summer solstice on Sunday, is also June 21st, the 20th anniversary of greenbiz.com as a website. Wow. Happy anniversary, Joel. I wasn't I wasn't there at the beginning, although I think I, I celebrate the 10th anniversary. I, this is my 10th. I've been here half of that time about. Yeah. That's awesome. That's, that's amazing, too. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And actually, <laughs> this podcast is about to celebrate five years. So here we go. Here we go. Um, June 21st, 2000 was the day that we flipped the switch on greenbiz.com. It had actually been a website that I had run for a newsletter that I used to publish called the Green Business Letter. That was greenbiz.com. But then it became the resource center on business, the environment, and the bottom line. That was the original tagline. And uh, we'll link to a, a piece I did 10 years ago for the 10th anniversary that shows a picture of greenbiz.com on launch day. It's kind of fun to go back and see what that looked like. Anyway, um, that was that's on Sunday. And um, looking ahead on next week on Monday, the 22nd, we are doing our, was this fourth annual or fifth, fifth annual? I've lost track. Numero fifth five. annual yep. mm -hmm. uh, 30 under 30 mm -hmm. we're releasing. And uh, next week's uh, podcast will be devoted largely to that. We'll have voices of many of the 30 under 30s. And um, I, I'm always excited. It's such a great list that uh, you and the editorial team put together, Heather. And um, what are you thinking? I'm thinking that I'm excited to to celebrate this class, this class of honorees with the rest of our community. I, I love this project. It is inspiring for me. It humbles me because I think about the things that these folks have accomplished at such a young age. And I think part of the point is we, we are expecting and eager to see what they do next. So I'm, I can't wait to introduce them to the rest of the community. 
Yeah, and uh, we will also, as we continue to do, feature articles written by our 30 under 30. We had one last week from Drami Bond on um, race and sustainability, a really provocative piece. And uh, we'll, we'll continue to hear and feature their voices on greenbiz.com in the future. But enough about the future. Let's talk about the past specifically, the week in review. So let's start off with this piece by our contributor, Jesse Klein, about the air in offices uh, during uh, and as we come out of COVID-19. This is a big issue because these buildings have been sitting there for a while. They uh, things build up all kinds of germs and bacteria and other nasties in the ductwork and um, the chillers and other parts of the HVAC, the heating, ventilation and air conditioning systems. And this is an old story. In fact, I'll tell you how old it is. And I'm sorry, I'm, maybe I'm feeling old this week. We're talking about anniversaries or, there's, or at least back in the day. My first book in 1981, I don't think you were born yet, Heather, was <laughs> on the uh, health, health effects of office environments. And it was about, in part, about this very phenomenon of that the we were starting to recognize back then as we were sealing up buildings to save energy and tearing out all the interior walls to create the open office cubicle culture and then bringing in synthetic carpeting and particle board desks and all kinds of things and then running the HVAC less and less that the air inside was becoming uh, worse than the air outside. And we had all been focused on air pollution out in the you know, smog and from traffic and stuff. It turns out it was worse inside. And and, and we're, it's been an ongoing issue. Those problems even was that almost 40 years later has have not really been solved. But we're facing this moment now with, uh, as we come out of COVID and as some parts of the world start to spring back to life. And uh, Jesse did a great job here of talking about some of these issues. Yep. And uh, it's interesting to hear that background because I wasn't, I didn't really think about that as, as I was editing and helping her develop this story. But this is a classic example to your point of something that's been talked about for years and it took this jolt to get people actually doing something about it. Because the fact is, if companies want to send their folks back to their offices, to their cubicles, they have to do this now. They have to explore options such as having offices with windows that open. My gosh, what an amazing concept. I'm sitting here with my window open now. Um, I get to work at home. So for me, that's lovely, but but many office buildings, um, the, everything's sealed up uh, and you can't open the windows. So that's, that's, you know, a simple yet really, for some reason, quote, hard thing for, for facilities managers to do. And part of the reason it's hard, of course, is because it, it uh, affects the energy load, right? Um, there's also some really wonderful Examples of rerouting the ventilation and, and, uh, I, I, this, this actually kind of comes from a data center world. Um, the way you blow air, right? So if you blow air from the top down, um, we've seen lots of stories about in the offices where people had ventilation blowing, blowing the, the virus essentially across a, a one room of a, of a floor of a building and that whole set of employees, you know, was more susceptible and there were more cases in that, in that group of people. Versus on the whole other side of the floor where the, the, the air blower was not, um, you know, in that direction. So now people are talking about doing things like under, under floor, right? So 
pushing the, the air up from underneath and, and, and keeping a, a, the, the air moving that way. So yeah, I mean, it's a, an example of what's possible. Um, I can tell you that some of the earlier stories we've done about this sort of topic have done really well on the site. So I know you're all thinking about it. And there's some really great examples um, in this story of things that people are doing already. Yeah, and, and it all has to do really with the air change rate. Um, how many times an hour is the is the air changed? And um, in the past, it's you know there's an air change rate around 60, 65 percent per hour. Um, and now we're advocating that it be 100 percent. And as you said, that dramatically increases. The energy factor when you bring in outdoor air, it's 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 harder to heat and cool. At least takes more energy to heat and cool than it does if you're recirculating interior air. Um, and so this is going to be an ongoing challenge, not just from an energy consumption basis, which I think is obviously subservient to the public health benefits. But this is the kind of thing that companies, um, whether whether you own the space or uh, or leasing it, are going to be dealing with. Let's move on to another story about Unilever. It did some remarkable things this past week. Uh, two big things. One was that it announced it was devoting a billion dollars to create a fund for climate and nature. Um, and it's, it's uh, all part of its goal to ensure net zero emissions across its value chain by 2039, just uh, 19 years from now. Um, and... Um, just sort of remarkable and, and how the company uh, and, and CEO Alan Jope uh, and justify this in business terms that this is how we not only ensure the well-being of our suppliers, including the smallholders in, in, often in uh, developing countries, and but just impact their lives and livelihoods, but also ensure ongoing um, supplies of, of the goods and raw materials that we as a company need by investing in nature, the natural capital that helps to grow those plants, uh, what, protecting wildlife, water preservation projects, landscape restoration, reforestation, things like that. Pretty remarkable. And we'll get to the second half of, the, of what's interesting about their announcement in a second. But what did you think of this? So... Yeah, I mean, this. first of all, I love this year, 2039. I'm kind of curious why they picked that year. It's, it's very a, a random and obscure, and I'm sure there's a reason. So at some point, I want to ask them about that. But there were a couple of things that leapt out for me. In particular, the, the uh, statement that they will be procuring based on their suppliers' carbon commitments. So in other words, they're calling their suppliers on on these things as well. So they're they're going to be looking at whether their component manufacturers, their farms, or whatever it is that they're buying are meeting various uh, metrics. And so whenever we talk to big companies like this, and you know, Unilever of course has thousands of suppliers, and they've always hinted that that you know they want their suppliers to be more sustainable, but this time i see where they're they're basically asking to people to declare so they're it's going to be incumbent upon the suppliers and so that kind of raises the bar um, for the smaller companies out there so it, it will actually have a big ripple effect on, under smaller companies so that was something that that really was intriguing to me um, as was some of their water uh thinking they're they're going to be putting more um focus on making their product formulations 
biodegradable. Yeah. Well, speaking of product formulations, the other part of it, which is really remarkable, the commitment that Unilever um, put out this week is to um, put carbon labels mm -hmm. on its 70,000 mm -hmm. products. Mm -hmm. um, and this is all, again, mm -hmm. part of its 2039 goals. They're going to show, you know, how, uh, how much greenhouse gas was emitted in the process of manufacturing and shipping these products to consumers. And this is everything from chips and ice cream to soap and a whole range of things, 70,000 products. Um, and this is this is no small thing. I mean, there, there were some efforts in, in the UK to do something with on what they call crisp, what we call potato chips. Walker's crisps a few years ago started developing a, a carbon label. Um, and it turned out to be extraordinarily difficult and it was unclear how much consumers actually cared. But um, with with this vast array of products, it will be really interesting to see how its big rivals, Kraft Heinz, Procter & Gamble, are, are going to be, uh, whether they will be following suit or, or just letting um, <laughs> Unilever hang out there by itself. But that's a really remarkable commitment. And we will, suffice to say, be tracking this closely to see um, how it works and, and what difference it makes. Yeah. I would be remiss, Joel, if I didn't mention that another company made a similar proclamation this week. And I bet you have no idea who I'm talking about. Logitech. No Logitech um, is attempting to do the same thing with some of its gaming products. And um, they've got a really interesting formulation that they've, um, they don't talk a lot. They don't market their sustainability metrics a lot, but they've been thinking about this a long time. And they're going to also be labeling. Um, they're going to be sharing that methodology with other technology companies. Um, they're doing, but they're doing one product to start at <laughs> 70,000. Yeah. Still, I mean, it's a really interesting and intriguing um, uh, effort. Yeah, and Logitech, for those who don't know, is a Swiss manufacturer of computer peripherals and software. You may have their webcam, uh, if you have a separate webcam off, aside from the one on your computer, for example, and lots of other peripherals. And um, they're located, as I recall, in both in Switzerland and, oh, Newark, California, not Newark, New Jersey. Okay. Nope, never mind. not here. <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, and before we leave Unilever, I want to give a plug to something we haven't announced, and the listeners to this podcast will be the first to know that on July 16th, I will be having a intimate one-on-one, -on -one, hour-long conversation, a webcast with Paul Pullman, the former chairman and CEO of, of Unilever, with whom a lot of these initiatives began, of course, continued now under his, his successor, Alan Jope. I'm really looking forward to that, and I hope you will mark that on your calendar, registered, and participate in that. It will be 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Uh, Pacific on July 16th. But let's move over to one more story that... Um, our intrepid reporter, Heather Clancy, did <laughs> on uh, Purdue and Smithfield and Silver Fern Farms. Mm -hmm. We've certainly been hearing a lot about meatpacking lately. Mm -hmm. uh, what's going on? So this, I, I just want to, in full disclosure, say that I started working on this story before the pandemic really hit us here in the United States. And I've actually been holding on to it for a little while because I just didn't feel it was appropriate to publish it in the middle of um, some of the the shortages and, and just the, the 
very upsetting and disturbing, you know, disruptions that these supply chains had. And so out of respect, I, I held it back um, for that. But but I, I think the thing that for me that stood out was just, you know, when I started talking to uh, these companies about zero waste, I had no idea what it meant for a food company, right? So Purdue back in February announced that they had a zero waste certification for this facility in um, Lewiston, I think, uh it, that was their first one that they they did with this particular this particular certification. It's in Lewiston, North Carolina. Um, what did that mean? I was like, what does that mean exactly? Um, and for me, the thing that really leapt out, as as the headline implies, is the packaging. Right. So the the hardest thing for these companies to deal with, by far, is figuring out how to uh, recycle or reuse or something the plastic that touches the the animals, the, the meat itself. So the organic materials that are being cut up and 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 um you know packaged for consumption in supermarkets. And so when you think about that problem, it it's pretty profound. But they're 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 testing some really in- unique things. Um, Purdue, one of the things that they've been thinking about is how to how to replace the foam, for example, that that sits underneath the, the cuts of meat, and uh, use potentially recycled materials. Right now, the the cost is too high, um, but there are other ways that um, that people are getting around that. So one example is this company called Silver Silver Fern Farms. It, it's it's not a well known company. They're actually only uh, in the United States. They're only selling in my area, in the what they call the tri-state area of the Northeast. Uh, they are a New Zealand company that pres- provides uh, beef, lamb, venison, things like that. And they are um, getting more into uh, to Ziploc, excuse me, vacuum packaging, not Ziplocking, vacuum packaging the, uh, the, the meat and also very tightly portion controlled. So they're, they're not sending the meat to a supermarket and then having it be recut and repackaged. They're cutting that, that secondary step out. So they've, they've rethought that. Um, and it actually, Lengthens, lengthens the shelf life of the of the product as well. So that's just one one example of what's going on. But it's it's just a really tough problem um, for these companies. And so when you hear a food company talk about zero waste, often it means really the the cardboard and and some of the things in their cafeterias and so forth. And if you look po- deep more deeply into the numbers, you'll you'll discover that there's a lot of waste to energy stuff going on with these companies. They're incinerating things and well, let me ask you a bit of a pushback question here, which is that I, I bet there's more than a few listeners who are hearing this and saying, yeah, okay, packaging in meat, sure, problem we need to address. But is that really the, the, the big problem that we should be leaning into here? I mean, first of all, there's meat itself and the impacts of producing meat and, and the carbon and, and, and other impacts, water and everything else. Um, there's also the conditions going on in these factories. You sort of lightly touched on that, but there's massive COVID outbreaks, and those don't seem to be getting any better. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's sort of in some ways when I read this story, it sort of reminded me of of you know recycling cans and plastic bottles on airplanes. Sure, it's something we should be doing, but is that really the biggest problem that airlines are facing given, you know, everything else, all the other impacts environmentally? What would you say to people who look at this and saying, yeah, this is maybe just a little bit of a smokescreen? 
So I think, I mean, certainly if you, you want to look at that way, I mean, I, I, I guess for me, I guess my counter is, would you rather have them not try or what, what would you, what would be the, the option just to stop make processing meat to stop <laughs> selling meat in general? Um, maybe we just eliminate the entire business. I don't know what the answer is. Um, I do know that Purdue has, has actually gone, gone through the step of, of taking the plastic, cleaning the plastic, having someone try to do pellets and, and figure out ways that it could use that plastic for, um, for other things. And it, uh, they, they didn't, they felt that they, they could not invest in that. Um, and, but they were trying. And, and as far as I know, they're actually still trying. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, is the bigger, if you want to talk about like food waste, um, you know, I think what Silver Fern is doing is kind of neat because it's, it's, it's taking, uh, it's taking the, the portions and making them not too big. I mean, how many times have you bought a, um, I don't know. Actually, Joel, I don't even know. Do you eat meat? I do eat meat mm-hmm. uh, uh, sparingly, but I I do enjoy um, and uh, meat. And we were living in the San Francisco Bay Area. We're lucky enough to find good meat, um, locally sourced meat, um, cows and pigs and lambs that were hugged to death and died laughing and <laughs> oh, all, of, all of that. Uh, so, <laughs> well, the reason I bring it up is because my my husband and I. Uh, we, I mean, I would say I am also, I eat meat sparingly. Um, but you know, there's so many times where we go to the grocery store and we pick up a, uh, is it just as an example, a steak. Um, we don't eat it that often, but, and we can't like, we have to share one. I mean, it's just, everything is so big. So the fact that silver fern thought, okay, like, let's just make these things real. Like this is how much someone's going to eat or how much someone should eat. And it, takes away the, you know, it, it gets rid of the food waste at the consumer um, point of, of consumption, right? At, at, at my house, um, it, 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 thinks about, it thinks about how that animal is processed a little bit differently. So there isn't that waste um, in, in terms of that part of it. You know, I, I know, think, you know, nothing goes to waste at these companies. I mean, they are looking at ways of using every single biological piece of these, these animals. And the Smithfield has an entire division devoted to the medical applications um, of its pork. Uh, and so, so, you know, things like mucosa, glands, skin, th- there's a, a tremendous number of medical applications that, that benefit from, from how the, the companies think about not wasting the animal protein. One of the reasons I love doing stories like this is because, yeah, I do agree. There's, there's probably some solution we're not thinking about um, someone's got to step out and be bold and, and invest in a way that the others haven't invested in yet. Um, but these are little, I suppose, baby steps so far. And, um, you know, I like to see people try. So I want to add a, uh, since you're talking about my stories, Joel, I'd love to talk about your stories. And um, this, is, <laughs> this is just, um, you know, in, in, with all seriousness, you've done some really thoughtful pieces through this, this pandemic essays on, you know, the, the way that the sustainability community should be thinking about COVID-19. And now, um, you've, you're calling people out on how they should be talking about racism. Um, companies over the past week have made, you know, pick, pick a company, insert name here. And that's kind of the point of your story is there's been a lot of commitments. Um, and you're kind of calling, you were calling people out on this. So, Tell us a little bit more about um, what gave you the idea and who are some of the people that helped you uh, 
flesh that out? Yeah, I guess the main thing was uh, starting to see the backlash of all of these corporate um, statements uh, in solidarity with Black Lives Matter and and anti-racism and all of that. Uh, you and we've all seen the you know the black box with the white type that sort of become de rigueur these days for companies. And uh, at the same time, there's this backlash. It's saying, okay, thank you, corporation, for that statement. Now, please do us the favor, this is on social media, of posting a picture of your board of directors and your leadership team. And of course, they're predominantly white and maybe even predominantly white male. And so they're, you know, really calling these companies out saying, you know, words are good, but actions are what's important here. And how do we really change this uh, in a way that's not just um, not just lip service? And so, yeah, and, and, and part of it is also, you know, I've been hearing increasingly people say, well, Wall Street will remember who acted in what ways and who reward the leaders and, and, and uh, punish the, the laggers. And so I decided to call one of my go-to sources on on these issues, uh, Erica Karp, the uh, CEO uh, and founder of Cornerstone Capital uh, on Wall Street, uh, to talk about this. And I and, um, sort of asked her, what's Wall Street thinking and what are the metrics? And she said, first of all, your standard analyst isn't going to ask, please articulate your efforts to become an anti-racist multicultural organization. She said, you're not going to hear that on an analyst call, although she said, I think you should. But I asked her, well, what, how will companies be talking about this or be judged on this? And rather than give me a series of metrics, she laid out a continuum that sort of came from uh, the psychoanalytic world and now being applied to this world. And, uh, well, I'll let her describe it. You know, there is a continuum um, for organizations that want to be anti-racist and multicultural, right? And so the continuum starts at a at a an organization that is exclusionary, right? So flat out racist, and hopefully they will be gone. And then with that continuum, you know, this is what we look for: that there's a really good chart. I don't know where it came from, but it comes from the psychoanalytic heritage. You know, my wife is a psychologist, so I see some stuff. And this chart that is this continuum, and again, I don't know who put it out there, but it, it kind of shows, okay, so you have these exclusionary racist institutions, and then kind of the next step is kind of a, a um, passively racist, so it's like a club, you know, which is the history of a lot of industries, you know, the history of Wall Street, the history of um, uh, the media sector. Uh, the history of technology. In many cases, it's clubby, right? And so here's where you have that, you know, that that passive reinforcement of racism. And then you're getting a little bit better, which is, I think, where we may be now in many companies out there. It, it's like an organization of compliance. So there we have, you know, symbolic change, right? You write a letter. And you kind of include some, you know, non-racist policies. So that's kind of a compliance culture. I do think that's a lot of what you have on Wall Street still, you know, and in some sectors. Um, and here, there's, there's, it's all full of contradictions 
and it holds, you know, power structures the same, and it forces kind of um, assimilation, let's say. So, like, you're a person of color, and you go to one of these compliance-type organizations with symbolic change, and you better become like them. And then, on this continuum, we start getting to more what I call progressive organizations. You know, the next step is is uh, on this, uh, I, I think it's called an affirming institution. And that's where we start to see the consciousness coming along, right? But maybe not the power structures. Mm-hmm. Right? And then we talk about, you know, structural change. And industries that transform and they become truly inclusive. Yeah, I love this continuum, and um, it's. I link to the original of, of this. It's called the Continuum on Being an Anti-Racist Multicultural Institution that she refers to uh, in the story itself. There is this continuum, and there is this um, uh, process sort of that companies can go through to get from, uh, you know, not good at all to very good. And uh, just as there isn't sustainability or corporate responsibility, a lot of parallels there. I encourage you to check that out. It's Deanna Anderson, and I'm here with Emma Chow, who serves as the project lead for the Ellen MacArthur Foundation's Food Initiative, which brings together major industry players across the food value chain, along with cities, to take a systemic approach to unlocking the powerful, positive potential of the food system. Hi, Emma. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi, it's so great to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. So I actually, before we talk about the event that you all had uh, this week, I wanted to talk about kind of the start of the food initiative. I know that after you all released your cities and circular economy for food report um, at Davos in January 2019, that's when the food initiative started. Um, As I mentioned in the intro, you're leading that effort. So can you tell me a little bit about the initiative and like what you've been doing for the last like year and a half? Yes, yes, absolutely. So this is one of several multi-year programs um, led by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, which is really focusing on, well, our mission overall is to accelerate the transition globally to the circular economy. And of course, food and agriculture is such an integral and important part of our economy. Therefore, we started to investigate food when we published the report that you mentioned, Cities and Circular Economy for Food, which then gave us the evidence base Um, painted out this opportunity of $2.7 trillion worth of benefits that can be realized if cities around the world take actions based on circular economy principles, which are about designing out waste and pollution, keeping materials and products in use, and regenerating natural systems. And so these multi-year programs, we have others that look at plastic packaging, also fashion, um, and focusing on how to actually move the needle and move the entire industry at a global level onto a new trajectory from today's highly linear, damaging, wasteful, extractive, polluting system to one that is regenerative and resilient by design. And these principles of circular economy can help us, especially on the regenerative, regenerate natural systems piece when it comes to food. So we kicked off last June, so almost exactly one year ago, um, we launched at the Eat Forum 2019, the Food Initiative, much easier to say than Cities and Circular Economy for Food. Um, But it's all about moving from 
analysis to action, right? We painted the vision in that report. We built the evidence base. And then now it's all about showing that this isn't some theoretical concept, but actually it's already being put in place on the ground. But how do we trigger this momentum? And so we're working with um, industry leaders from across the entire food system. We have a collection of partners from the corporate side as well as philanthropic partners. And we're working with London, Sao Paulo, New York as our partner cities, along with about 12 other cities around the world as we support them on their journeys to achieving a circular economy for food. So you've been building this momentum, um, and I'm guessing that part of that momentum was having the Big Food Workshop, which just wrapped up um, a few hours ago. (laughs) Um, Can you share a little bit about what the goal of that three-day event was? Yes. Well, just a short few months ago, which now feels like forever ago, but probably back in February time, we were still planning to do something in person. This was before COVID-19 had fully um, kind of started to unfold in the UK, at least. We thought it would be a one-day workshop in London on June 15th. Of course, things quickly changed in ways that no one could have predicted. And we thought we'll spread it out over a few days and move from about 150 people who we were going to have in person to potentially thousands. And we decided to make all of our sessions public um, because our aim, again, is to really maximize the knowledge exchange. And this whole event was... I think the word inspire was really the top objective to be able to give a platform for really incredible speakers from all around the world, from all parts of the food system to showcase what they're doing in their organizations and their geographies um, with the hope of inspiring stakeholders around the world to also take action and try and scale up this momentum. Exactly that. It's the inspiring part to help build this momentum. So can you share um, any highlights from the event? Like, were there any sessions that stood out to you that really inspired you or made you hopeful for building this circular food system? Yes, I I left these past few days feeling incredibly humbled and very hopeful, really filled with so much hope in this moment. And looking at all of the sessions, I think there was a at least one or several magical moments in all of them. But one that was especially highly anticipated for me personally um, was on day two. So it was our second course focused on the eatery with four truly iconic chefs, including Alex Atala and Dan Barber. And seeing Dan bring these stories to life, which I read in his book, The Third Plate, a year or so ago, was really incredible because now more than ever, this idea of redesigning our menus, our dishes, and the power of chefs as probably the most influential stakeholders in in the food system. Everyone loves chefs and listens to chefs. Um, How to make these delicious, full of flavor meals that also happen to be benefiting the system more broadly and creating a food system where people, nature, and business can thrive now and long-term. And that is so, so needed um, as highlighted in the current pandemic. So needed, definitely. Um, I feel like we've seen a lot of systems kind of break down during this time. Um, 
I'm curious if you can share any first steps or what kind of takeaways from the event um, that people and businesses can actually like put into play at this moment. It's so true that many organizations in this moment, businesses included, are having a, a bit of a moment of pause, right? And reevaluating some things and perhaps rethinking some strategies. And what we see is circular economy offers tools and this framework, those three principles that I mentioned earlier, to design for systemic change, which also can help companies build back better, build more resilient, regenerative systems by design, which help move them faster towards set priorities, whether they be around climate change targets, biodiversity targets, waste targets, but also bottom line as well. And I think with food, um, supply chain resiliency, again, now and in the long term is so critical. And whether we're building up resilience to a future pandemic again or looming climate change shocks, that needs to be put in place because what this pandemic is revealing and kind of pulling the curtain back on is some of the greatest vulnerabilities and brittleness of our current food system, which boils down to individual company impacts as well. So they're realizing that's in their interest to be rethinking and redesigning supply chains, business models, food products, um, menus, if they're in food service or restaurants. Um, So I think just taking a step back and looking at what those set priorities are, maybe they're shifting and evolving, but what are those pathways to get there and look at these three principles of circular economy to see if that can help you start to sketch out a blueprint and pathway forward. So now that um, the event is over, well, one, is it still available for people to like view now? Um, And if so, how can they do that? Yes, we have all of our videos on our YouTube channel. So you can find it on the Ellen MacArthur Foundation's YouTube channel. We also have a dedicated webpage on the Ellen MacArthur Foundation website. So if you check out the food initiative section of our site, there will be one tab that has all of the highlights from the Big Food Workshop, including links that were mentioned to some of the materials or documents or initiatives shared from the speakers and highlight videos as well. And a survey too, if you'd like to share feedback, but also opt in to be engaged as we develop some different tools and resources. Uh, That's something we had a couple interactive sessions. We called them contribute sessions where we had about a hundred or so people from all over the world giving us feedback on some tools that we're developing. And this is to help companies do exactly what I just spoke about in terms of taking practical next steps. So we definitely invite businesses around the world to fill out that survey so that we can engage you during this process. Well, it sounds like you all have a lot of exciting work. And as someone who's covering the circular economy uh, and with an interest in food, I'm excited to continue to learn more. Thank you, Emma, so much for coming on the Green Biz 350 podcast. Absolutely. No, thank you so much for the opportunity.
Last week, the CEO Investor Forum and the NYU Stern School for Sustainable Business published a report titled ESG and the Earnings Call, subtitled Communicating Sustainable Value Creation Quarter by Quarter. The report was also published this week in the Journal of Applied Corporate Finance. The report looked at the intersection between the high value investors place on transparency and frequent reporting and the potential earnings calls that have to move markets. And it provides evidence that corporate disclosure to analysts is starting to look at longer term issues. Here to talk about the report is Tonsi Whalen, director of the NYU Stern Center for Sustainable Business. Hey, Tonsi. Hi, Joel. What led you to look into this topic in the first place? Well, I think the big challenge with investment decision-making as well as corporate decision-making is that the short-term pressures caused by reporting really undervalue issues such as environmental, social, and governance metrics and factors, as well as undervalue long-term planning. So our goal with this research was to come up with ways that investors and issuers could begin to have a much more informed dialogue around the impact positive impact we found of both long-term and ESG management. So talk a little bit about how did you look into this? You did interviews, a survey, what, what, what did it involve? Yeah, so we interviewed companies. We worked with about a dozen companies. We worked with uh, sell-side analysts who were covering those companies. We interviewed all of them, different players within the companies, to find out what were they thinking about covering, concerned about, re- related to ESG and long-termism? And basically with the sell sign analysts, what we found is that they said, well, we don't really see how these issues are important. And if they were important, the companies would be bringing them up. And then we talked to the corporates and they would say, well, um, yes, some of these issues are important, but nobody's asking about them. And so therefore we're not bringing them up. <laughs> so we found this catch 22, uh, you know, sort of fingers pointing at everybody else. Uh, And so, therefore, we really looked at, well, how might you build a more virtuous circle? For example, Starbucks reports on retention and all the work they do to to keep their employees. Now, retention is a huge issue for an ESG issue for retail. Generally, analysts don't ask about retention. They, They don't cover it as an issue that's really important. But because Starbucks retention rate is so much better it, it's a, than, than its uh, competitors due to its investment in its employees, it performs better financially. And so analysts have now become socialized into asking about how their retention rate is. You offer some uh, recommendations in the report. And one of those is to highlight sustainability and financial value, which is uh, simply to put cost to some of these things. Is that uh, possible and to do that in a way that's meaningful to analysts? Yes, I think it's very important that companies don't just put their ESG targets in quarterly calls or in guidance uh, or in any other format, because if you just put the greenhouse gas emission reduction target or the diversity and inclusion target without how it's related to your business, it's not something that seems relevant. So you need to really begin to track, well, what does that mean, our climate change targets? How is that improving our energy costs? How is it improving our innovation play? How is it reducing our regulatory risk, right? And report on that uh, along with your um, greenhouse gas emission reduction, for example. Yeah, you mentioned uh, the regulatory risk, and and you talk about similarly monetizing risk in uh, you know, what is the cost of not acting on a particular uh, ESG issue? Um, is that, are those things measurable? Can you, how do you disclose the, or calculate the cost of inaction? 
Well, so for example, you know, if you're a company with factories in areas where you have water risk, there have been factories shut down due to needing to divert water to uh, people as opposed to the companies. You can look at what is the cost of a stranded asset there and what the avoided risk might be. You can look at uh, risk, uh, reputational or market risk incidents that have happened to other companies when you know, uh, they haven't uh, managed that risk. And so you can apply, uh, you know, you can build assumptions based on where that risk has shown up for other companies and build that into your modeling as well. So you talk about this uh, disconnect or finger pointing, as you called it, uh, you know, one side doesn't think the other one's interested and the other one doesn't say the, says the other side that never actually says anything on this topic. What's the one or two things that, that would most quickly change that dynamic to the virtual circle that you described earlier? Well, our advice in our report based on these interviews and the work that we've done is that companies begin to build this slowly into all of their reporting. So they start out with maybe investor days and begin to bring their long-term plan and their key ESG context to the conversation. They start to have calls with ESG investors who are particularly interested in this, so they get more comfortable and understand the types of issues that they need to be talking about. Then over time, and we, we in the Journal of Corporate Finance, we provide uh, visuals on how you can do this, how you can build out your your quarterly uh, PowerPoint. You, know, you, you maybe choose over the four earnings calls, you choose one of them where you lay out sort of the longer term plan and then uh, with ESG and so on. And then you have short uh, summary updates during the course of the year in the other quarterly reporting. Jones Lang LaSalle was one of our uh, partners in this. And if you look, for example, at their 2018 quarter four, they introduce how climate change is really important for them as a real estate company, both in terms of providing energy and resiliency uh, services to their clients and how that's a growing area of business, but also in terms of uh, risk for them. When you come to their 2020 quarter one, of course, they're focused on COVID and they're putting that first, which is also obviously an ESG issue, but then they're still uh, mentioning and talking about their ongoing commitment to this climate uh, science-based targets that they've set. So that would be an example of a company that's beginning to introduce these issues that are really material financially to their company uh, trajectory. What about the barriers internal to companies, in other words, between sustainability folks and investor relations or the CFO or others? Uh, it, it doesn't feel like every company is necessarily ready, willing, and able to uh, step up in, in these calls to talk about these things. What needs to happen inside companies? First of all, you need to have CEO and CFO commitment. Uh, and that's that's critical. You need to build a cross-functional team because these issues run across marketing, HR, um, you know, supply chain operations, et cetera. So in order to really understand and provide good data on this that everybody's comfortable with, you need that cross-functional team. You need that buy-in. You need board oversight, right? You need the board driving concern and interest for these and so that you are reporting actually out to the board on how you're doing from a financial perspective on your sustainability targets. Um, and I think the the return on sustainability investment research that we're doing will help you do that, you know, really help you put in place the rigor to assess the financial returns on your sustainability uh, strategies, and including monetizing risk, you know, putting in place ways to better understand and track and monetize your risk and ensure that your board understands that as well as your CFO and CEO. And then finally, I would say, you know, the AIR 
for public companies, the IR function is increasingly getting these questions from investors or increasingly sort of reaching out to and understanding what's going on on these topics. So they'll be a key partner in persuading the CEO and CFO that these sets of issues are, are critical. And briefly, what's the potential here if we get this right? You know, I think the potential is to begin to shift away from short-termism that really destroys value, frankly, whether it's ESG value or broader shareholder value. I think we've gone too far to that extreme. And I think bringing back the context of the broader societal context in which the companies are operating, the trends that they need to understand and manage for, and the opportunities as well as the risks that that creates in a longer-term format is absolutely critical for us, particularly when we're dealing with issues such as Black Lives Matter and COVID and climate change. You know, this is a world that is constantly changing. And for companies to really manage it, for investors to really management manage it, these, this type of data needs to be part and parcel of how you engage, how you do your decision making as both an investor and a corporate leader. Well, there's no better explanation or demonstration of how things change than we've seen this year, and uh, lots more to come on that. Tansi Whalen is director of NYU Stern Center for Sustainable Business and co-author of a new report, ESG in the Earnings Call, Communicating Sustainable Value Creation, quarter by quarter. The report was published this week in the Journal of Applied Corporate Finance. Thanks so much, Tansi. Thank you so much, Joel. Earlier this week, the ride-hailing company Lyft made an astonishing announcement. They plan to electrify all of their cars by 2030. As we would expect, Katie Fehrenbacher, our senior writer and analyst for transportation, has that story. Katie, uh, what's going on here? Yeah, huge news coming from Lyft. They've, um, they're planning to add electric vehicles to 100% of their vehicles to be electric by 2030. And that is unprecedented in the ride hailing industry. Um, it's going to be hard work and a big goal, and they're going to need a lot of policy help. But it's super exciting, um, and, and it's a, a first in the industry. Well, how do they do this? I mean, they are, first of all, they don't own a lot of their cars. Most of them, in fact, are owned by the drivers. So there's that. And then second of all, they've been losing millions and millions of dollars for a long, long time. So how does this all happen? So, yes, most of the drivers on their platform own their own vehicles. And so those drivers will have to be incentivized to adopt electric vehicles in a variety of ways. Um, Some of those can be um, through Lyft influencing state, local, and even federal policies to provide more incentives and mandates for for the shift to electrification. But also Lyft will have to do other more creative things. They'll have to work with EV infrastructure providers to get more EV charging, public fast charging out there available in areas where drivers are adopting these new EVs. And they'll also have to work with the automakers to get more cars that are optimized for ride hailing um, to be electrified and offered um, for, with with uh, strong leases to some of these drivers. So there's a lot of things that Lyft will have to do to accomplish this very audacious and bold goal. I would imagine that the automakers would be pretty thrilled about this. It would be a big lift for them as well. But um, 
do we know anything about are these going to be leafs or uh, what kinds of vehicles that we have planned uh, or are they going to just uh, work the market and see what who, who's uh, competitive we don't know the details yet of what vehicles are going to be um, acquired by lyft or their drivers um, we know that in some locations like in denver in colorado region in seattle um, Lyft already has a green mode program where it's trying to incentivize some of its drivers to be using plug-in hybrids and hybrids. So in those cases, a lot of those drivers are using like a plug-in Prius or a Prius um, or the GM's Volt, um, GM's Bolt, Nissan's Leaf. So this is just kind of getting started in some of these areas. And a lot of the drivers are currently using um, hybrids and hybrid plug-in vehicles. But um, I think it would be natural to assume that, um, you know, in California, a bunch of these drivers probably will going to be adopting things like GM's Bolt, um, Nissan's Leaf, um, and some of the other, um, the most mainstream and, and low cost passenger EVs available right now. And of course, between now and 2030, there will be a lot more vehicles introduced into the market. Why is Lyft doing this? What's, I dare I say, driving this? <laughs> So I think it's a combination of factors. Um, I mean, one of it is to differentiate itself from Uber. Uh, Lyft is in fierce competition and always has been with Uber for ridership. And Lyft has always been the smaller player. So it needs um, a branding to be able to get riders and drivers onto its platform. Um, Lyft has also tried to be a sustainability company from the beginning. Um, the, the company was co-founded by a transportation planner. Um, they very beginning, they had this vision of using ride hailing to make car ownership and riding um, and taxis more efficient. So they kind of lost their way a little bit in there where the past eight years, Lyft has really just been trying to survive. And now um, John, uh, the co-founder, was saying on the media call that you know, now Lyft has gotten to a point where they've survived their public company, um, they've gotten to scale. And now that they are really trying to implement this vision of actually reducing transportation emissions, um, instead of being a contributor to the problem of rising transportation emissions. Uh, so you're John Zimmer, you're referring to as the uh, Lyft co-founder and president. Uh, but what about Uber? I mean, they could just do this as well. What, what do you think the story is there? I mean, I think with the story with Lyft versus Uber that, you know, Lyft has kind of had this sustainability plan baked into their DNA from the very beginning where Uber never had that plan from the very beginning. I remember talking to the Uber um, CEO way back in the day, um, asking him if Uber was going to be a green transportation uh, provider and solution and him basically saying, you know, no, that's not in our DNA back. This was back in you know, 2008, nine type of timeframe. Um, and I think more recently they've tried to move into, you know, micro mobility with scooters and, um, and the jump bikes. Well, they just sold the jump bikes to Lime, but, um, so they've tried to do, um, lower emission transportation solutions as well, but they were not started with that intent, um, and vision of trying to be a sustainable transportation company. So I think that's one of the, um, main reasons why, um, the difference between Uber and Lyft in terms of their overarching goals. Yeah. Well, lots more to follow on this story down the road, and I know you'll be following it. Katie Fehrenbacher, Senior Writer and Analyst for Transportation at GreenBiz. Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Joel.
And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350, and you'll find out more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned this week. And while you're there, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish six of them every single week. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to find out more about them. And as always, we love to hear from you. You can email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Stay safe, and as always, thanks so much for tuning in.